Hey, it's Caitlin. Hey, it's Abigail. Welcome Welcome to to The Gutsy Gutsy Truth. We're here to break down barriers of what's considered normal in health, wellness, relationships, and work. We're so excited that you're here with us. Let's dive in. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. We are so thrilled to introduce you to our friend, Tina Swinton. She is an author of a book called Divorcing a Narcissist and a community called One Mom, One Mom's Battle. And she also provides support and strategy for navigating divorce and child custody with a narcissist. So it's a, it's a heavy topic today, but I know t- Tina is going to provide some really valuable resources and information to all of us listening. So welcome to the Gutsy Truth, Tina. I am so excited to be here. It's, it's a heavy topic and it's an important one. And it's one that so many go through when they're suffering in silence. So I'm grateful to be talking about it. Exactly. That's exactly why we wanted you on the show with us today. So let's just start things off. Um, We would love to know who you are, what you do. Tell us your story. So I have two daughters and back in 2009, I found myself in a really difficult marriage, one that was Um, I was struggling to make sense of. And at the time, my daughters were two and four years old. And I I kept begging him to go to marriage therapy with me and to try to figure things out. And, you know, he continued to tell me that it was my my issues and I was the problem. And so I'm able to self-reflect. And I said, great, I'll go to therapy if you're not going to go with me. And I remember sitting there and emotionally vomiting in this lady's office. And it was my first visit with her. And she asked me to pause and she walked across the room. We had been talking for about an hour and a half. It was a long session. And she brought back the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistic Manual. And she basically said, I want you to read this excerpt. And it was on narcissistic personality disorder. And back then, well, now it's a buzzword. Everybody's talking about narcissism. However, back then, there was really nothing out there on the topic. And so as I read it, not understanding what it was and never hearing this term, you know, she told me, I'm not qualified. I can't diagnose him, but everything you're sharing with me really makes this ring true for me. And so when I read it, the naive part in me, I felt hopeful. I'm like, we have a, a label. This sounds exactly like what I'm dealing with. And now that we have a label, how do we fix it? And her next comment was what really felt like a gut punch. She said, there's no fixing this. You either accept that this is your life or you leave because this is, um, no one can treat this. And so that was, you know, really started me off on this journey where I am today. Wow. So can you define for us what a narcissist is and how do you identify a person who has narcissistic characteristics? Yeah. You know, the term is thrown around so much. You know, we, we typically think of someone who takes a lot of selfies or posts a lot on Instagram. And unfortunately that, you know, it it really minimizes the pain that so many are going through. Um, You know, somebody who, first of all, there's, there's, narcissistic personality disorder, which is an actual personality disorder. And then there's narcissism. And we all are narcissists to some degree. There's varying levels. And I think of it almost as a scale. 
So somebody who has a healthy level of narcissism, they're not problematic. But once somebody gets over to the high end of that scale, these are people who aren't capable of having empathy. They are very superficial. They're motivated and driven by self-interest and the need to win, the need to be the best, have the biggest house, the nicest cars. Um, there's a lot of them walking around <laughs> with us every single day. Wow. So what happened next in your story? So you sat down with someone, they helped you identify these characteristics, you were hopeful, then what happened next? Well, it was around that time that the, uh, you know, we lived what I now refer to as a fake fancy life and huge house, gated community, lots of fancy cars. And I had been kept in the dark about finances until our live-in nanny called me one day and said that the IRS was standing on our front porch and le left their business card. We found out that day that they had frozen all of our assets and that um, they had put a lien on our house and on everything. And I discovered that week that we were $1.6 million in debt. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So our entire life fell apart. And it was about six months later that our divorce started. And I, you know, there was a part of me when we started the divorce process, I didn't understand what a narcissist was at that point. I didn't understand that when met with conflict, it quickly becomes World War III because mm -hmm. to them it's about winning. And so in our relationship, he had never participated in the children with the children. He and and it was one of the biggest sources of contention between us is bond with them, you know, play with them, you know, get to know that these two little girls, because that's what I wanted for my daughters, you know, and so when we started the divorce, I naively thought he's going to have to step up to the plate and be a dad to some degree. But I didn't think he would really fight for the kids at all because he had never changed a diaper. He had never participated in their lives unless there was a camera on or an audience present mm. and that he had to, the image in the community um, was really important to him. So to anyone who knew us, they thought he was a great doting dad, but behind closed doors, he would come home and my little girl would run from him, away from him. Oh gosh. And so, but you know, what I didn't understand at that time when my divorce started is that for the narcissist, it is about winning. And so he saw our daughters as pawns mm -hmm. and as weapons and as the number one way to hurt me. And, and so our, our divorce really, I ended up in the women's shelter, a place that I had volunteered for so many years um, and that was incredibly humbling. So, you know, it started off that way. And because of our financial situation, I had to represent myself. And I'm conflict avoidant by nature. And I here I am, I can't afford an attorney. And I'm having to figure out the family court system and serve as my own attorney, which, you know, I looked like a deer in headlights in there for the first, um, I'd say, year, <laughs> really. And the, I would say the third year into our custody battle, I was in court 13 different times wow. in a 12-month period. So it truly was um, 
conflict like I've never known before. And you're in a court system that prioritizes parental rights over child safety. Mm-hmm. And, and that was really disheartening. And so many times I would leave the court and I would just feel like maybe I'm the problem. You know, I, I felt like what planet am I on when I'm explaining to these people that my kids are in danger and they're telling me that he has rights and that, you know, he deserves to be a parent. And I'm thinking, but what about their rights to safety? What about their human rights as children? And so you find yourself in this twilight zone um, that is family court. And uh, it, for me, in total, it was about a 10-year journey in the family court system. Wow. So it took you 10 years to get full custody of your girls? I secured full custody after about four years, and but he still had visitation, um, parenting time. And it was about two more years past that point that I was able to stop all contact. So he wasn't even allowed to call us anymore. And then another four years before we were able to terminate his parental rights. So he currently has zero custody um, or legal rights to my daughters. Even after we had ended his visits, I'll tell you just that knowing that he had legal rights to my daughters, it was a constant fear. What if something happened to me? You know, he would get custody of these, these girls and it was terrifying. So terminating his parental rights, you know, I'll tell you at every step of my journey, people told me you'll never get supervised visits, never, you know, cut off his contact with the girls. You'll, you know, terminating parental rights is unheard of. It just doesn't happen. And I refused to listen to the naysayers. And I just, and it's almost like I put on blinders and would look at them and say, thank you for your opinion. And I'm going to just keep doing you know, I, I have to put my head on my pillow every single night knowing that I have done everything in my power to protect them. Wow. So, and through that 10 years, did you continue to be your own attorney through that process? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, it was about the two year mark that I really hit a, a turning point because I was feeling like it was a twilight zone. And and so I started going into the courtroom on days that my case was not on the calendar and I would just sit there and I would observe. And I remember the judge looking at me and saying, Swithin, what are you here for? And I said, your honor, I'm just here to watch today. And, you know, for me, we were so known in the courtroom that the, you know, the bailiffs would almost high five me on the way in because we were there so much. And so the judge would recognize me in the courtroom. Um, But I became a fixture in the courtroom. And when I would hear other cases that resembled mine or that seemed very similar, I would follow other moms out into the hallway and introduce myself and say, 
I promise I'm not an unstable person. <laughs> I'm not a stalker, but can we go to coffee or can we talk? Because there are similarities. And, you know, I would study cases. I would go to the court computer and pull up the cases and review every single filing, how the attorneys wrote things in declarations. And I really started you know, it was radical acceptance, you know, grasping that to the court, we were just case numbers. To me, these were my children and it was very personal and very emotional, but we're in a very patriarchal, misogynistic world and system. And so when I was in there and if I showed emotions, it's easy to chalk it up to just some hysterical mom. Mm -hmm. So I started really looking at the system through a different lens and through the lens of I'm just a case number to these people and that I have to be more strategic in my approach. Oh, my goodness. Did you have so prior to all of this happening in your life? I mean, did you have any legal background training or you literally just learned on the fly? I learned on the fly. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, that's, but I, I commend you. I mean, obviously, I mean, you're fighting for something so precious to you, your girls. And I completely understand that at being a mom myself. Yeah. You would move mountains for them. And so like that, I just commend you though, for you like, I'm reading old case documents. And I'm like, I don't know if my brain can read old case documents. <laughs> like that's like legal jargon. I don't get, but that is so impressive and so commendable that you were just like, I'm just going to figure this out and I'm going to figure out the system and beat the system to whatever yeah. I need to. Nothing else was working. I'm yeah. like, it was, it was sheer desperation. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So why, 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 like what's wrong with the system? Like why, why did it take 10 years? And this, we probably don't have enough time to like yeah. talk about everything, but like, I just, from the basic concept, like, yeah, it, like how much of it is a system? How much of it was just the narcissistic personality? Like talk to us about that. It's 100% the system, and this could be a 10-part series minimum, um, <laughs> but to give you the overview, you know, if, if you're, here's an example. If you're in Tennessee, hairstylists are required to have more training in domestic violence hairstylists than judicial officers. What? So someone can say, yes, and that's the part. Like, you wouldn't go to somebody to have knee surgery who had no training, but our judges in family court can sit on the bench with zero training in domestic violence, oh in, in trauma. They, you know, some states have zero requirements. Some states, it's just a suggestion. And so they don't understand how perpetrators present the tactics they use, how abuse victims present. I mean, I have a diagnosis of chronic PTSD. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, and I do pretty well holding it together. However, some victims of domestic violence, because of what they've been through, they can't stand in the courtroom and, and all of a sudden be strategic, you know? Right. And so, it's and and there's been times where I've you know barely held it together to get to the bathroom and I have a complete breakdown in the bathroom because mm -hmm. these are my babies and um, so there's a lack of education in the system in general. There's a high level of victim blaming that takes place in the family court system and it's such mixed messages because we tell victims of domestic abuse to be brave and to leave, and that's the right thing to do. However, they walk into the family court system, and my judge actually looked at me one day and said, 
you married this guy. You decided to have two children with him. This is not my problem to fix. And I felt like someone had punched me in the gut because I'm here because as a victim of, you know, the, the court system of this person who's using my kids as pawns, my only resource is the court. And so when the court is talking to survivors that way, we have a crisis on our hands and, you know, and then like I had touched on earlier, um, parental rights, you know, really do trump a children, a child's right to safety. And um, there's, it's a very conservative estimate is that 58,000 children are sent into abusive situations every single year mm. as a result of family court failures. And wow. I, you know, the numbers of children who have actually been murdered um, is, it's hard to grasp. It's, it's a high number. Oh my goodness. So obviously you have quite the story, but you haven't just kept all this information to yourself. You have turned this into a resource for thousands of other people internationally to get resources from you. So talk to us about the support you provide, what, what hope there is for people. Yeah. So I, I call myself the accidental author and family court advocate. (laughs) Um, I don't know that anyone would ever choose this journey, Sure, but um, it was about two years into my case that I just decided to start a blog. And it was again, out of, there was a lot of desperation and, and just feeling so hopeless. And so I, Back then, I truly believed I was the only one. I didn't know anyone else going through this. So I I bought the domain name One Mom's Battle, and I just started blogging. And I felt like at least my dad and my friends and family could follow along because, you know, you tell people what's going on, and they're looking at you sideways. And you can tell they're going, well, there has to be more to the story. This doesn't make sense. And you're going, you're right. It doesn't make sense. There's no common sense in family court. And so I started this blog and I was discovered by um, actress Christy Brinkley and she was going through a very difficult divorce at the same time. And so because of the public exposure on her case, she started referring people who were contacting her for support to me. I didn't realize she was following my blog. And so my little tiny blog, um, really exploded. Literally, it went from about 40 views a month to 40,000 in 24 hours when she put it on the map. Um, And so as a result of that, I started receiving emails from people all over the world. I realized it was not just one mom's battle. This is an international crisis. And um, just, you know, started connecting with other people, sharing stories and Next thing you know, this little grassroots movement that I started, you know, right now we probably have about 150,000 members of our community all around the world um, through various social media platforms and support groups. So Mm. it's, um, it it is a a problem worldwide. Yeah. And it's, it's obviously so unfortunate that there's a need, but at the same time, like it's apparent that what like you sharing your story has helped so many people 
um, just by knowing that they're not alone. And I think that's so important in the world that we live in. And especially in a situation like that, where you're advocating for yourself, you're probably thinking, am I crazy? Cause a narcissist is just gaslighting you and, you know, making you question everything that I can't imagine, um, what that's like to go through. Ugh, I commend you, Tina, like seriously, it's, it's amazing to see what you've done. Um, so how, if if someone's in a, a relationship with um, someone right now that is a narcissist or they think they are, like what what's the first step? What what advice would you give them? Educate yourself um, on the reality of what it is like to divorce somebody who's highly narcissistic because you know there's there's lots of different categories of narcissism, but. I do feel that, you know, even if somebody is lower on the scale, but they still have a lot of concerning traits during times of conflict, they can really inflate and escalate. And so expect the unexpected. You know, this is such an unpredictable journey because we don't think the same way they do. And it is truly about winning. So it's, um, it's choosing your battles wisely becomes a guiding force in that it's so important letting them feel that they're winning in whatever category that is as much as you can because that's what it boils down to and um, maintaining boundaries but you know when you're in a child custody battle sometimes boundaries can be used against us because the court expects us to co-parent and to sing kumbaya with this person on Sunday nights. And so, you know, on, on one hand, our therapists are telling us have boundaries and rock solid, you know, this and that. And then in court, there, you know, it backfires on you. So really understanding the system, connecting in community with other people who have been through this so you can start learning. You know, it's truly like learning a different language, a different culture, a different way of thinking. Um, and and it sometimes it feels all-consuming that I remember, you know, I just recently shared a picture of my kitchen table years ago, and it was just piled with documentation and binders. And, you know, you feel like you should get a law degree by the time you're done with this, even if you have an attorney, you know, you still have to become an expert on the system. And I, I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make is when, if they do have an attorney, and even if the attorney is really good, they just release all control to them. And I try to remind people, you are still your child's best advocate Mm -hmm. and you are their voice. And so your attorney doesn't, hasn't lived to this. They don't know who you're up against. You know, should your attorney be educated in this type of personality? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, you know, you, you know, you have to um, advocate for your kids regardless of how great the team members are. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything since your journey has started, has there been any movements or changes in the court system? Like, have you seen a change? I mean, I mean, you yourself and your organization and your people in your community are obviously advocating, but has, has our things started to change a little bit? Yes. Good. Yes. So about a year ago, um, myself and several other um, of the top advocates in the country came together and we formed the National Safe Parents Organization. It's nationalsafeparents.org. And we're united in the same goal. And around that same time, well, in the past year, 
at the federal level, the Violence Against Women's Act was signed in. And with that um, came something called Caden's Law. And Caden was a seven-year-old girl in Pennsylvania who was murdered by her father, um, despite her mom's attempts to protect her in the family court system. And so Caden's Law is the first time that the federal government has recognized that we have a huge issue in the family court system. And so that gives me hope. Now it's taking that and implementing it state by state, which is a, a huge task. Yeah. But, you know, through the National Safe Parents Organization, we're really um, equipping people and mobilizing them to take this into their own states. Wow. Um, and that's, I mean, you said that and that law enacted a year ago? They actually here this year in 2022. In 2022. Oh, my goodness. And you started this journey in 2009. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's heartbreaking. I mean, I'm glad it's finally here, but like for the hundreds of thousands before you in the years of all of this, like that's so disheartening. It took that long for, for people, the, the yeah, court system and, to recognize. Yeah. And, and it's not, you know, it's at the federal level, but family court is governed by state. So right. it's still truly not make, having an impact yet until it gets past state by state. And there's all kinds of, you know, amazing people, the National Family Violence Law Center, they, you know, put out research on, on the reality of what it is like, you know, moms are usually the, the victims of domestic violence and, and what happens in these cases. And um, Danielle Pollack from the National Family Violence Law Center is, a you know, the policy manager and is writing legislation. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I feel that the family court system has gotten even worse mm -hmm. since I started my journey. So that's disheartening, but I do, you know, still hold out hope because of the recent movement that's happened in the world of advocacy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So along your journey, like, did you think twice about talking publicly about this or, or did you have a choice? Like, or like, yeah, tell us about that. So knowing what I know now, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would have probably done it under a ghost name. I would have chosen a pen name sure. and not gone public. Um, the reality is it could have had a devastating effect on my case because it could be seen as speaking poorly about my children's father and that they could potentially read that information one day. You know, I think our courts really infantilize children that they can't think for themselves and, and um, that's a whole nother topic. But, you know, I, I do think that in any other courtroom, the direction I took with my blog could have had really negative effects on my case. So for that reason, I would have done it under a different name. Um, but, you know, it's, I don't really have regrets because I do feel that it, it went the way it was supposed to go. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Wow. But would I recommend anyone else do what I did? No, I would <laughs> not. I wouldn't. It's actually really, you know, frightening to, sure. we need every single person in the country, you know, joining our advocacy efforts and standing up and saying, what are we doing to our kids? You know, when everyday citizens hear what's happening in family court, it's almost like they can't believe it because it's just so, it's hard to grasp that, um, 
there's nothing in the best interest of children, you know, happening in court. So we do need survivors to join and, and, you know, together raise voices. However, when someone's in active litigation, I personally can't recommend it because, um, taking a huge risk. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on here, because it's not until you like have a family member that goes through this, that you really get your eyes open to everything. And that's so sad because obviously so many families and children are suffering because of this. So what can we do as family members who are, have someone that's dealing with this, or if we just want to support your efforts, like what can we do? So every November is Family Court Awareness Month, and we have we're in our third year. And one of the things we're doing is going um, to cities, counties, and states, and asking them to proclaim um, November as Family Court Awareness Month. And so it's a, a great way to raise awareness at a community level uh, with mayors and city council people. And and what we're also seeing is survivors when they go to these city council meetings and they're sharing a a two-minute snippet of their journey and getting this proclamation. For many of them, it's the first time they've ever spoken out. And so there's healing in that and being heard Mm -hmm. by people in your community. And, you know, and and whenever this is happening, we have mayors. um, I mean, just today I attended a city council meeting online with the mayor of Pittsburgh and, you know, he gets it. And, and that's what we need is everyday citizens who are standing with us and linking arms and, and saying, you know, we need to do better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm so thankful for the the work that you're doing and, um, incredible that you're making this like a, a um, like not just where you are in California, but obviously a a nationwide effort, I think is so, so important. So I guess you've done so many gutsy things based off of like what you told us with your story, but I would love to know, um, what is something gutsy that you have done? Um, and how did it make you feel? Gosh, you know, I'll tell you public speaking is, has been my biggest fear in life. I mean, I've been hypnotized for it. That did not work. I have (laughs) done all kinds of things. And so I knew that really taking my advocacy efforts to the next level would involve doing things like this or, or speaking publicly. And so it was about, I, I remember about three years ago, I said, if any opportunity comes up, I'm just going to say yes. And then I'm going to figure it out later. (laughs) And I was invited to speak at a domestic violence conference, um, in, in Florida, uh, for the Seminole Indian tribe. And I agreed, I said yes. And then I'm on a plane panicking the whole way. And I stood up there in front of a lot of people and I did it and haven't looked back since. I say yes to all opportunities to talk about this issue because it's something that's been kept in the dark for far too long. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think just speaking out in, in whatever fashion that looks like is like some of the gutsiest things people can do, whether that's just telling your friend or telling your family or speaking publicly in front of thousands like you did. And, you know, like, so just the action of speaking out, I feel like tends to be people's gutsiest things. And I just think it, I mean, just, we just need more of it. 
because um, speaking and learning and coming together as one is just how we can enact change of any kind. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love Absolutely. it. Um, so I guess what other encouragement could you provide to those that are struggling in a situation like this? It gets better. You know, I, I remember when you're, when you're in it, you know, it can be so dark and so isolating because even those who are well-meaning, they don't understand. And so, you know, for me, it was lifting my vision and asking myself, is this going to matter in two years or in three years or in five years? And, and just continuing to lift my vision because it helps you to put things in perspective um, when, when things feel really dark and daunting and, you know, I, that's where I do think it's important to connect with others who you can hear the success stories because they're out there, you know, they're people persevere and people do protect their children in this system. And, um, so I think lifting your vision and really, you know, going beyond where you're at in this exact moment. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's good perspective of, um, you you get so into the daily grind, you forget to look up and and see what's the big picture. Um, and I think that goes for any aspect of life. I think I'm, I'm a daily grind person. So I think that's a very good reminder for me to hear today. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no. And I, you know, I'll say one, one thing on that is I remember when the girls were little and, and Christmas was one thing for me where, Uh, there was a year that I wasn't going to have them on Christmas and they were like three and five. And it's such a, you know, my mom heart like shattered. Mm -hmm. And, and I'll tell you that if you ask my daughters now, they're 17 and 15, which Christmas they spent with me on the actual day and which one they didn't, they would have no idea. It was about the memories that we created together and whether that's on December 30th or, you know, December 21st, you know, for me, it felt like the world was ending, but to them, you know, they don't remember what day we celebrated when you're in it. It's really, you get caught up on those things and it's, it's painful. So, Mm. yeah. Yeah. That's a good reminder. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. I just soaking all this in, I think it's just, yeah, I just really appreciate you, you doing what you do. Um, because I I think it's so important. Do you think that there's things that women can look for in a relationship before they get married to, to, so that they prevent this from happening? Absolutely. You know, your gut is never wrong. And, and I can look back. Hindsight is 2020. And, you know, you look back and, and when you had those, you know, something doesn't feel quite right. Lean into that. You know, it's so important because regardless of what we learn about narcissism or narcissists, they all present so different. There's different types, there's different variations. And so there's not just a, here's the profile and this is what you look for. You know, it's really individual. And so that's where really going in deep. And, and I'll tell you, if you put up a boundary with someone like, Hey, you know what? I need a few days, you know, to myself and I'll, I'll give you a call on Sunday. And that person sends you flowers the next day or violates your boundary. That's a red flag. You know, the one thing where you can test someone who's narcissistic is that they have no regard for boundaries. Hmm. That's good to know. Yeah. That's good to know too. Cause I think it's boundaries are something that like 
I feel like a lot of people struggle with making them because they don't know how to advocate for themselves just on regular things like like work and, you know, outside of work life and all that kind of stuff. So when it comes to relationships, I think, especially if it's a new relationship, you're just like trying to, I, I just relationships are so hard to navigate, especially in this day and age with technology and just how people meet each other online that I feel like it's so much more complicated than it used to be. Um, And so I think that's a good reminder of like the importance of boundaries is not just for like advocating for yourself, but also getting to understand how other people respect you or don't respect you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, And one of the things I picked up from a psychologist that I know borrowed judgment, you know, when we are in love or, you know, have a crush on someone, our, you know, our center goes off and, and, you know, your cognitive functioning is not what it normally is. And so really listening to people around you who, you know, and trust who have good judgment about people, you know, it's, it's called borrowed judgment. And I, I really, you know, it's one of the things I look back on. I wish I would have talked to people who knew me and loved me and people who I saw as good, healthy, centered people to ask their opinion because otherwise you wait till the end and then they go, yeah, you know, something was always off about that person. (laughs) But, and, and even had they come to me and told me that in those moments, I don't know that I would have listened. So really, you know, taking the time to check in and being open to the feedback that we could potentially receive, even if it's difficult to hear. Yeah. And isn't that kind of one of the things that narcissists will do is they'll kind of like try to separate you from your family and friends and whatnot so they can have more control over you? Absolutely. Isolation is the first stage. And sometimes you don't even see it as isolation. Sometimes it's just like, hey, you know what, that friend of yours, I don't really love. And then you start to go, oh, yeah, you know, I have an issue with that friend. And pretty soon you find that all of your friends, this person has an issue with and pretty Mm -hmm. soon you don't have any more friends and, you know, or moving away or, you know, whatever it is, it's about control. It's about taking you off you know, so whatever the isolation looks like so that they do have more control over you. And, um, definitely I, I can look back now and see that as one of the number one things that at the time I didn't recognize as problematic, but now it's as clear as day. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, I know that you are off to um, a pretty important event later um, this evening, um, so we want to be respectful of your time, but we do have one question that we love to ask all of our guests. Um, So we want to know, um, what is something that is filling your bucket these days? Oh, goodness. That is a great question. I have started doing projects um like kombucha like making homemade kombucha nice. and yeah. and things like that or um I'm fermenting like garlic and honey in my pantry right now it looks like a science experiment how <laughs> fun That's awesome. so I would that would be my answer I love that I love it it's so important just to to learn new things and try new things and be able to obviously step away from some of this the the, the hard things that you're, you're navigating and doing something that really fills your bucket and, um, is also good for you as well. So that's awesome. 
Well, Tina, I am just so thankful for your time today and all the work that you're doing. I'm thankful that I, you know, I'm lucky enough to know you um, just through family friends. Um, and I've, I've seen a lot of the amazing things that you've done for women. Um, and I just, I just hope that today people know that they're not alone in this and that there are resources. Um, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? onemomsbattle.com is kind of the hub for everything I do. You can find my books. I do online courses. You can connect with our support groups. And uh, on Instagram, every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific, I do a Coffee with Tina live and I answer people's questions. And so um, that's a great way to connect with us. That's awesome. Yeah. And her website, yeah, you have a ton of resources on there, which is incredible and, a, and some that are free as well. So um, I think that's awesome. Um, yeah. And we'll link all to that in the show notes as well. So, and just again, Tina, thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you for your time with us today. I know our listeners are going to benefit from it. And I just look forward to seeing you really move mountains with the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Gutsy Truth. We are so thankful to have you here with us and we hope you enjoyed today's story. Until next time, we encourage you to follow along with us on Instagram at The Gutsy Truth. Or you can learn more on our website, thegutsytruth.com. And we would really appreciate if you left a review on today's episode on your podcast streaming platform of choice. Um, These reviews not only help our podcast be more well known to the world, but you can share this today's episode to a friend or family member or coworker who you think might need to hear um, an inspiring story for their journey. And until next time, that's the gutsy truth.